When Tripp asked me to do this week, um, it, it was interesting to me because this is one of those passages that um, it, it in many ways is kind of like a children's story. And a lot of Luke is written in such a way that we hear the stories told over and over again to us from Luke, whether it's about Elizabeth getting pregnant or Mary getting pregnant or some of these stories about Jesus getting lost in the temple. These are really common kids' stories. And, and so we grow up with them, but a lot of times it's really easy to uh, kind of miss out on the fact that, like the passage opened, it, it's Luke writing to Theophilus, two very learned men, and Luke is trying to unpack this big case of, of here is what I would like for you to understand in order that you might understand the Christ, the Messiah, that He has come as, as our sinless sacrifice. So all of Luke starts off sounding like all of these little children's stories, and in many ways they're applicable and is simple enough that a child can understand them. But, but we have to remember the context here in this passage is one in particular that you can either read it as a children's story or dive into it, and there's some really deep theology tied into that. So we're going to try to unpack uh, both sides of that equation, if you will. Let's pray as we get started tonight. Father God, I thank you for your love and for your word, just for the truth that not only that, that you used Luke to convey to Theophilus, but I pray that by the power of your Holy Spirit that you would just ring it true in our lives and in our ears tonight that you would help us to understand more clearly your intentionality as our Messiah, as our Redeemer, as our sinless sacrifice, intent upon drawing us to yourself. It's in Christ's name that I pray. Amen. Amen. All right, well, we're going to go through and read a couple of passages. So if you have a Bible with you, you may want to pull it out. We're going to jump around a little bit. We're going to start off uh, by reading this passage. We're in Luke chapter 2. Uh, starting in verse 39 and going through verse 52. And you can look at that on your device. Tripp's got some Bibles over here. Uh, if y'all will allow me or indulge me, I'm just going to read this for us as we get going tonight. It says, and, and when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned into Galilee to their own town of Nazareth. Now this was after the Passover. It says, and the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. Now, and I'm going to pause right here because there's a pause in Jesus' life at this point in time. When we start off, verses 39 and 40 kind of uh, will hit us off guard if we don't realize what happens here. Uh, Jesus' family has just celebrated the Passover. They have, uh, it's been very early in his life, and then a punctuation mark comes. And, and we're about to see them go on a journey back into Jerusalem. And so that's where we pick up here is, is their next uh, time when he gets to the age of 12. It says, now in verse 41, Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the Feast of Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up according to custom. And when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it, but supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey. But when they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances, and when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the, among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. 
And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. Now this passage is kind of interesting because it it goes through what to any parent would be a freak out kind of story. I mean, and and we relate to this story, uh, especially if you're parents, from our own perspective. How would it feel to lose your kid? Uh, I, I know when I was about six years old, uh, my, my mom will tell the story all the time of, of me getting lost in the woods. I went out and followed my brother and his friend out into the woods across the street from our house, and I was slower than them. They took off and left me, and there were about 600 acres across the street from our house, and I had no idea uh, how to find my way out. And, and so my brother and his friend went home, and... and uh, I proceeded to wander around in the woods. I heard cars, so I went to the road, which was, and this was shortly after we had moved into a new house. And so I went out to the highway, got to the highway, and, and I could see across the highway there was a, a home over there that was a, like a big farm. And I went over to the farm, and it was the Mathis house I found out later on and after I met the Mathis family. And I go wandering up in this family's front yard, and I said, I'm, I'm lost, and I don't know where I am. And this little six-year-old guy. And uh, so Mr. Mathis put me and his dog in his truck, and we went back across the road and went riding up and down the road. And, and when my, my mom saw us driving down the road, which she's panicked by this time, uh, she didn't care anything about anything other than getting me out of that truck. And she snatched me through the window of the truck, didn't even bother to open the door, uh, because she was worried. And, and we think about it in those terms. Relationally, we care about our children. And, and so most of the time we read this story from the perspective of Mary and and Jesus being lost, and this interchange, and all of this that transpires, but really that's only just a a glimpse of what's really going on in this passage. And don't miss what's really happening here, the transitional nature of this passage, by the feelings that are packed up in it. And and a lot of times when we hear this story told about the, the children's story version, we miss out on the fact that this really is a transitional moment in the life of Jesus and in the life of His earthly parents versus His heavenly connection and and relationship and Him setting His face towards the cross. So this is a, a big dynamic shift that took place in the life of Jesus as far as His relationships and His clarity of direction. So it starts off, and it's really family-related at first. And we hear the story, and, and it, it was interesting that you know Jewish families would go and travel to the Passover. And, and so for Jesus' family, it was about 80 miles. And so it would take them three days to walk those 80 miles and, and go on their, their annual Passover pilgrimage. Now, a lot of times whole family units would go. A lot of times just the men would go. But in this case, there was a large group of family units. We don't know exactly how many, but relatives, family, friends, 
Uh, by this time, Jesus had siblings, so there were other people involved. And they would go as a group. And it wasn't unusual. Now, we think in terms of if I lost my kid in a department store, I would freak out. Uh, but in this case, it was a, a more communal sense of family and relatives. So they're all trekking down there. Usually the children would actually go at the front of the group, and that way nobody left them, nobody you know, got out ahead of them because their stride's shorter, and in this case they're playing Legos down front. And in that case, they'd be walking out in front. The women would usually be behind because they're keeping an eye on the kids. And the men would walk at the back of the group and talk, and that way they did not just get into their own zone and stride out front like we guys are so clueless about doing sometimes, and just getting where we want to go, being, being directional. So in this case, they've all made this trip, they've done the 80 miles, they've done three to four days journey getting there, now that they've done their sacrifice, and, and they're headed back home. So they all pack up as a group and they all head back home. And the assumption is everybody's here because everybody's been there the whole time. They operate as a family unit. They live together as a family unit. Family units stay together. They look out for each other. And when you're a part of that family, especially a child, you know that you stay with your family. And so there was a connection there that all the other kids in that group shared we're about to see that something had changed in Jesus' connection of why he stayed back. And so family-wise, they all headed back, and just chronologically speaking, they get about a day back, about 20 miles or so, 20 to 25 miles, if you can imagine that, and they get down and they settle in for the night, and I can sh I'm sure they're ready to pass out the chicken nuggets and have their happy meal around the fire and, and just have dinner together, and, and somebody realizes, well, where's Jesus? And so they, they do an immediate search, and, and if you can put yourself in Mary's shoes for a minute, she's probably freaking out more than a little bit because she knows that he's not there. It's not like he was at the neighbor's house because they're in the middle of an 80-mile journey. She knows he has to be somewhere back in the big city. And so they have to, one, spend the night, if you can imagine sleeping, knowing that your child was back in the big city, and then turn around and trek the whole day back to find him and then go through the process of finding him in the big city. So it, it says in the passage that it took them three days to find him, and that, that includes the day that they had traveled out, the day that they traveled back to Jerusalem, and the day that they spent searching for them. So at the end of this third day, they finally come upon Jesus. And so Mary probably, at much in the same way that any of you ladies would be, was probably frantic. Joseph, at this point, frantic as well, uh, not knowing what to do, and, and they probably had every urge to snatch him through the window of the proverbial pickup truck because they had been missing their child. They, they were upset about this 12-year-old boy who had disappeared. And so Mary's reaction is, is very much akin to that, and her reaction as a mom is, how could you do this to us? And it's not from a standpoint of disobedience. She's not accusing Jesus of disobedience. But it is just that freaked out mom moment of, of you know, that, that Jewish uh, mother uh, syndrome. If you've ever watched The Big Bang Theory, uh, Howard Wolowitz's mom and uh, the, the classic Jewish mother guilt trip going on. 
Uh, and you can almost hear that, that raspy voice coming in from the other room of, how can you do this to us? And I can't imitate that at all. Uh, so probably shouldn't have even tried. Uh, but anyway, so, so there's this sense in which her first thought is about herself and about her family. And what she doesn't realize is the prophecy that Simeon spoke in verse 36 has taken its first stab at Mary. If you go back to verse 36, remember what we looked at last week. Simeon said to, to Mary, he said in verse 35, sorry, and a sword will pierce your own soul also, speaking to Mary, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. Simeon had prophesied already to Mary, this is not going to go the way that you think that it is. This child who is yours is actually the Christ, and it is going to be tough when the letting go part begins to take place. And so this is the first element in that letting go series to where Mary has to recognize what, what is going on here. What has happened? My family has been broken up. And in, in much that same way when, when Jesus, excuse me, when, uh, when it says uh, there in verse 48, and when his parents saw him, they were astonished. His mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? You see, the easiest thing for us to do about this passage is probably one of the least healthy things for us to do about this passage, and that's to think about it from Mary and Joseph's perspective. Because if we do that, we miss out on the fact that, that the context here is Luke teaching Theophilus that Jesus was the Christ and that God was directing him towards the cross. And so when this passage begins to unfold, we always have to keep the context in mind that, that this is the one point in which this, this great almost 30-year span of silence about Jesus has been punctuated by this one interchange because we go from Jesus as a mere infant or certainly toddler all the way up to Jesus beginning His earthly ministry at the age of 30. And we have this one punctuation mark of these handful of verses. Why in the world would Luke unpack this to Theophilus if it was not to show His direction to the cross? So we have to understand those things, that it's fulfillment of prophecy from Simeon, it's fulfillment of the intent of, of God to bring the Messiah. And there's some passages that unpack this. First of all, in terms of the mother, uh, you can write these down, you don't have to read through all of them, but in Mark chapter 3, verse 31, there's an interchange that comes later on in Jesus' earthly ministry. And you may remember this story, Jesus is is teaching, and there's a woman in the crowd that, that yells out in, in, the, uh, in the process of this, Blessed is Mary. Blessed is the woman who nursed you, for she's blessed among all women. Now, th there are a lot of people, even faiths, that are wrapped up in that idea that Mary is wonderful. And all this should point us towards Mary is Wonderful, and how amazing it would be that that uh, that that she had that opportunity. Let me read that passage for you. Um, if I can flip over to it in Mark chapter three, verse thirty-one. It says, "In his mother." I'm sorry, I gave you the wrong passage to start with. Um, don't you hate it when you give somebody the wrong passage to start with? Okay, that was Luke chapter 11, verse 27. Let me 
flip those. Luke chapter 11, verse 27. And as he said these things, a woman in the crowd raised her voice to him and said, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breast at which you nursed. And he said, Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. Can you imagine that? I mean, Jesus, the son of Mary, if that was who he was supposed to be, uh, has this opportunity to give great credence to his mom who gave birth to him. And this woman says, man, it is just amazing what your mother did for you. And he said, no, it's not about my mom. It, it Blessed are those who, and he turned it back to who he was and his relationship to the Father. So we can't get distracted in this passage by Jesus' relationship to Mary. Back in the, the verse that I mentioned in Mark chapter 3, verse 31, uh, there's another passage that does almost the same thing. It says, And his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. Now Jesus is preaching in this setting. It says, And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside. They're seeking you. And he answered to them, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and my sister and my mother. So it's a, it's a phenomenal passage in that, that we see what Simeon had said to Mary that later on is, is captured at the end of this passage. Jesus is separating himself from his earthly mother. Not by will, not by disobedience, but by calling, by direction. And that is what Luke is trying to paint for Theophilus. See, this is not a religion about who Mary's mother was. And it's the same with his father. And in Psalm chapter 2, verse 7, it, it makes it clear that there is a genealogy tied, and that's repeated again in, in Hebrews, but it makes it clear that God says there in Psalm chapter 2, verse 7, it says, This day you have become my son, and I have begotten you. And it, it's the Father speaking, God the Father making it clear that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of the living God, tied to Him, not the earthly heritage that's there. Now, a lot of people try to point to this passage and say this is, this is where Jesus went and He, he was having His bar mitzvah and, and it, it was coming into manhood. And there's part of that that's true. Now, bar mitzvah had not been invented yet. Uh, this was the point at which when a Jewish boy turned 13... He became a man, and he was treated as a son. A child of under 13 years of age was not called a son. He was called a child. And a son was someone or a title that was reserved only for a child that had reached the age of 13, could inherit from his parents, and, and was a man, and was to be treated like a man. And so the bar mitzvah, which is son by law, if you translate it, had not been invented, but this is more or less the time at which that was recognized for Jesus. And so this passage is one not in which we should be enthralled with the fact that, that he was separated from his family, but that he was separating himself from his family. Now, it wasn't out of will or disobedience, and I want you to be careful to, to not think Jesus is committing a sin here. Uh, because there's been much done in Scripture to try to make uh, Jesus' childhood romanticized. I mean, there's all kinds of stories about Him fashioning doves out of clay and bringing them to life or making palm trees bend over to provide His mother shade and all that's nonsense. 
if God had wanted us to focus on what a great child He was, then, then God would have given us passages focused on what a great child He was. But God doesn't want us to focus on Jesus as the child of Joseph and Mary. God wants us to focus on, and Luke wanted Theophilus to focus on, this is the Son of God, and this is where he began to separate himself from his family and recognize that his relationship was with a heavenly father, and it was based on an eternal home rather than just his earthly home. So there's a sense in which he changes his dynamic with his earthly family. There's also a sense in which he changes the way in which he would be viewed by the church. Now, it's, it says that when they found him, it says he was sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking questions, and all who heard him were amazed at his understanding. Now, you know, it, it's kind of interesting. The, the way in which we view church is, uh, I'll say, very Americanized for most people. Uh, we think about church in much the same way we think about restaurants. Uh, I went today with my family, and if you're on Facebook and you're my friend on Facebook, uh, not that people that you know on Facebook are really your friends, but they're your connections. If you know me at all from Facebook, you know I'm always posting pictures of food because I, I love food. And, and one of my favorite places to go is Gus's World Famous Fried Chicken in Memphis, Tennessee. Now, there's branches of Gus's World Famous Fried Chicken, uh, but they're not like the real thing. I mean, the real one on South Front Street, it's actually to South Front Street uh, in, in Memphis, Tennessee. Right there on the river is the most phenomenal chicken joint you'll ever go to in all of your life, in my opinion. But they opened one in Atlanta, and I was so excited. And today, we went and ate at the church's, or the Gus's World Famous Fried Chicken uh, on, down in uh, downtown Atlanta. And, and it was wonderful, and we had a great time, but it wasn't as good as the original. And I, I was just comparing it to the original because I had been to the original. And so I was, I was looking at that in comparison based off of what it did for me. And, and a lot of times we look at church in the same way. We, we look at church and think, well, what do I get out of it? Or how's the music? You know, can the doodly and music... Uh, sing well? Can he play the guitar well? Do I like singing that song? Was the temperature okay? Were the kids too distracting? And we think about church in a very American context, which is easy to do because that's how we were raised. But don't miss out on the fact here that, that there is a dynamic going on here in Jesus' relationship with the church in his day that's transformational. And it is such an incredible punctuation point based off of what his ministry would come come to be and by the hands of whom he would come to die. So here is Jesus. I want you to think about this for a minute. The Holy Son of God, right? Omniscient. Omniscient. Those big words. Omnipotent. So he, can, he knows everything. He, he's all-powerful. He's existed for all of eternity. There's not anything that catches him off guard, right? This is Jesus, fully God, like we sang about, fully God, fully man. The big 50-cent theological word is a hypostatic union, meaning that this fully 100% man was united with fully 100% God. This is our Messiah. 
He had to be that in order to be our sinless sacrifice. So here he is at the age of 12 sitting in the temple and referring to the temple as what? What did he refer to it to his parents as? This is my father's house. In fact, he was so shocked that his, his parents didn't know where to look for him, right? He's like, why would you look around Jerusalem? What, you think I was going to be at Taco Bell? Did, did you think I was going to be having lamb kebabs? Did you think I was going to be walking around the Gap? I mean, where did you think I would be? But see, they were thinking about him of this is our son, and he was thinking about where can I be close to my father? And he said, why would you look anywhere else other than my father's house? Now, the translation that we get in, in our Bibles is that you should know that I would be in my father's house or at my father's business. The preposition that we have there in the passage is really just what we would translate as in. So whether you say that's in my father's house or in my father's business, the implication is that I would be doing whatever it took to be in something involved with my father. I would be connected with who is my real dad. Now, now you think about that for a minute. This, this all-powerful Son of God, He's picked the right place. I'm in the church. I'm in the temple. But, but who is He with? He is, he is with the teachers, right? And, and He is sitting and talking with the teachers. Now, are, are these teachers Christians? No. Do they know who He is? No. Would they accept Him for who He is? In fact, who would kill him? Who would judge him? Who would send him to the cross? Who would yell, crucify him? These very people around 20 years later. But he sat there with them. He said, how could I not be here? And there was nothing consumeristic about it. There was nothing, you guys are the wrong people here. I'm in the wrong place. He was in the temple. Because it was where he knew that his father's presence needed to be. He, he wasn't there to find something. He was there to usher something in. To be a part of something that, that was supposed to be going on. And that's the same way that the Holy Spirit of God, when we read that where two or more are gathered in His name, it's not about that consumeristic comparison it is about that we as believers are to be celebrating our relationship with our Father. That is what should bring us together. That should be our focus. And in this passage of Scripture, Jesus is dealing in an incredibly powerful way with these. And, and what we don't understand a lot from the language, because we read this a lot as a kid's story, this is a deep theological passage here, is that, that Luke makes a big transition here. There's one word that he used uses to refer to the teachers here that he never does again throughout the rest of the Gospel of Luke. He uses the word didaskalos to refer to the teachers with whom Jesus is speaking now. That they were teachers of truth. That, that they held the law. And that is a term that from this moment on, once Jesus becomes an adult, he never uses to refer to anyone but Jesus. He then changes the term that's used to refer to Jesus' teachers to one of two other Greek words, and I won't bore you to tears with those, but he changes the terminology for the teachers from the temple, elevates Jesus now that he is an adult recognizing who his father is, and from there on out, 
the, the teachers of the law within the temple take a step down. Jesus takes a step into his heavenly relationship and now is the teacher of the law. And he takes on a unique term that we don't capture, but Theophilus certainly would have. He would have recognized that this was a new step for Jesus the Christ. That he was making a transition point. And always capture that when you read this passage. But it was also a a clear statement of, I'll say, of timing and humility. Now, there's a lot of times, and and I'll tell people up front, I have a really easy time being a jerk. Uh, I mean, it just comes really easily to me. And if you've known me very long, and and my son's probably like, yeah. um, I'm just a black and white guy. Being a jerk comes way too easy to me. And and if there's, I'm I'm that guy that I kind of want to justify. If there's something that needs to be said, I'm okay with saying it. I don't mind offending you. I don't mind telling you my opinion. I mean, I'll I'll throw the blunt card anytime. Is there anybody else that's like that? You have an easy time throwing the blunt card? There must not be because you're not willing to admit to it. I'd admit to it. I'd, I'd own that puppy. Yes, I have a stack of blunt cards in my pocket, and I'll throw them. But you think about this passage and the timing and the humility that it took for Jesus to sit in the temple with the people that would crawl for his death 20 years later. He's not sitting with them talking about, now listen, there's going to come a day in a few years where you're going to think some really crazy things about me and you're going to want to kill me. But let me just tell you that from the, from the mouth of a 12-year-old, you really shouldn't do that. You know, there's going to come a day, you shouldn't do that, you're wrong. You know, it, here's a, it's not like that. He is talking about his father. He's drawing them into a conversation about his father in humility and in full recognition of the timing that was required that it was not yet his time. Now, when he steps into his earthly ministry later on when he's at the wedding feast, what does he do at the wedding feast? What's the first miracle that we have recorded from Jesus? Water into wine. We all know that, right? But when his mother asked him to do something at the feast, what is his response to her? It is not yet my time. Woman, and that's the word he uses, not mother. Woman, it is not yet my time. And right here, you've got to know that in that little 12-year-old head, the Son of God knew that this wasn't his time either. So he's sitting in the temple with people who would later call for his death saying, it is not my time. I'm going to honor and glorify my Father in heaven. And he says to his parents, how would you look for me anywhere else? Would you not know that I'm about my Father's business? So in this passage, he's wrapped up in the gospel, wrapped up in the direction that God is taking him into in humility and in recognition of the timing. Now, there's, uh, there's also a, a great idea, not only of what this does to his family and what this does to the church, but there's a great implication on what it does for us personally. And really, it's where Luke's focus and Luke's desire was that they would bring out that response in Theophilus as he unfolds this punctuation mark, if you will, uh, in, in the middle of this 18-year at minimum span in Jesus' lifespan. And and that's what happens with us personally as we respond to the Christ. Now, if any of y'all, and and you don't, I'll ask this in a way that you can raise your hand. Have you ever seen a, I'll call them a vicarious parent? Somebody that, you know, they, you can look at them and you say, you're not a cheerleader, 
but you sure want your daughter to be. And you're going to all ends to turn her into a cheerleader. You are directing her into a cheerleader or, you know, the dance mom or the soccer mom or the soccer dad or the football dad that they are trying to live vicariously through their child. Have you ever known anybody like that? It's okay to raise your hand. I mean, they are passionate about that, aren't they? I mean, there's television shows about it. Uh, the, the, there's these reality TVs about, you know, I don't know the name of any of them, but every once in a while you, you see them on TV, the, the little advertisements of these crazy people that are trying to directionally focus their little child into being excellent at something that ordinarily a little child wouldn't care about. I mean, they're going to make Honey Boo Boo into a beauty pageant queen or something like that because they're just determined to do so. Now, now, if you were uh, in this time and, and the, you were a Jew, you were a Jewish family, what would be the coolest thing for your son to wind up being? The Messiah, right? I mean, I want my kid to be the Messiah. He's going to usher in the kingdom of God. He's going to rule the world. It, sure, it'd be great for my kid to be the Messiah. Now, now, you think about what has taken place with Elizabeth and the prophecy of her birth, her child's birth, John, and now Mary and the prophecy of, of her child's birth, been told your child is going to be the Messiah. So what is the, what's the implication? You know, the, the implication that Theophilus as a skeptic will say, as someone who is not yet a believer, that Luke is unpacking this gospel for, Theophilus could sit back and say, well, that's easy to say. You know, Mary was told that her son would be the Messiah. This, this virgin birth thing, I'm not so sure I believe that. And all she did was push him to, to be this person. All she did was try to develop him into this person who would be this great teacher, and, and he would spend all of his time in the temple, and you're going to try to make him memorize all the books of the Bible by the time he's two, and you know, you're going to do all this stuff because you're trying to direct... And my wife's laughing because she did that with our first child. Um, see, you know, you're going to do this because you think that's what he's going to be. You're going to live vicariously. Vicariously, you're going to turn this kid into the Messiah. But that's not at all what happens, and that's part of why Luke is unpacking this passage this way, is he wants it to be clear, this, this wasn't Mary's doing. This wasn't Joseph's doing. This was directionally Jesus setting his face towards the cross. And I want to remind you of verse uh, 52. It says, and, and we're going to just skim across the surface of this verse, and Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. Now that's another verse, and Josh, who can't be here with us tonight, and I were talking about this this week, that's a verse that will bake your noodle if you think about it. I mean, if, if, you, if you meditate on Scripture, pick this one sometime and think, okay, and he, and not from a kid's perspective, he grew in wisdom. How does God grow in wisdom? And he grew in stature and in, and in favor with God. How does God's own son grow in favor with his father? What, what does that look like? I mean, I know what it would take for me to grow in wisdom. It might involve a two-by-four, but it, I know that I need to grow in wisdom, but how does the Messiah need to grow in wisdom? How does that work? But this passage is one in which there is a directional development where Jesus turns the corner from 
childhood into adulthood, separates himself from just his earthly parents and embraces his his heavenly Father and his direction to the cross and begins to grow in owning his role as Messiah, as our Savior, as our Redeemer, as our sinless sacrifice. And we'll look at a couple of passages that unpack that. But that's something that, that... that the average person couldn't understand and Mary didn't understand. This is the second uh, section uh, there at the end of verse 31, uh, 51. Excuse me, it says, And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. Now, that's just Scripture way of saying she didn't know what to think. And that's the second time we've heard that commentary from, from Mary that, 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 that Luke writes, And she treasured up all these things in her heart. Because that's really all you can do. I mean, when, when you find out that your son, who's 12, says, why are you looking for me? I'm in my father's house. Joseph's right here. He lives back in Nazareth. I mean, there's this disconnect where Mary has to go, wait a minute. This child who is virgin-born, who is <coughs> destined to be the Messiah, now is separating himself, as Simeon prophesied, taking on his own as the Messiah, and that plays itself out in a couple of different ways. And the first one is, and what I believe that the writer is kind of reflecting on in this verbiage of that he grew in wisdom and in stature, is tied up in two passages of Scripture that I'd like to point to you as we wrap this up. And the first one is Hebrews chapter 5, verse 8. And we'll actually read through uh, verses 5 through 11, but, but verse 8. Um, is is where we're going to start. And I probably should have uh, marked these in my Bible to make it easier to turn turn to. (laughs) Hebrews chapter 5, verses 5 through 11. It says, So also Christ did not exalt Himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by Him who said to Him, And this is the Psalm chapter 2 passage that's reflecting back. And and this is a quote out of Psalm chapter 2. You are my son, today I have begotten you. And he says also in another place, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Verse 7 says, In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications, loud cries and tears, to whom he who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. And listen to verse 8. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And then verse 9, And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obeyed him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. I believe that that passage is Jesus setting himself up for what is described in Luke chapter 2 when he grew in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. As Jesus began to set Himself and set His face towards the cross, there were some some directional shifts that He had to ongo. And the first was preparing Himself to be our sacrifice. Now certainly, God could have, in a moment, made a fully grown Jesus, couldn't He? Jesus didn't have to be born in 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 a manger. Jesus didn't have to grow up and have his diapers changed. Jesus didn't have to get left behind in Jerusalem. None of that had to take place. God could have redeemed us in any fashion that he wanted to. 
One of the beautiful things about Hebrews, which is a book that unpacks kind of Jesus is better, is that it makes it so clear that Jesus was accustomed to everything that we are. That He could relate to us. That He went through the things that we go through. He was tempted just like we are. He struggled just like we do. And this passage makes it so clear as it says there in in verse 8, it says, although He was a son, He learned obedience through what He suffered. And being made perfect, He became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey Him. The implication here was just that, that that He had to go through, through these things to become our sacrifice. And the last one is that He was intent on our redemption, and that's in 2 Corinthians 5.21, which is an incredible passage. And it's just that, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. You see, the most amazing thing about the passage in Luke chapter 2 is not that it was a, a time in which Jesus just got lost. It was really a time in which Jesus found out or, or, or set Himself towards, is perhaps a better way of saying it, the place where God intended Him to be. I'm not Mary's son. I'm not Joseph's son. I'm not bound by anything on this earth. I place my faith in my Father, my Heavenly Father. I set my face towards the cross, and I intend to grow in understanding what it means to to die in your place and in my place. Because it's fully a situation where the only way you and I have salvation is that instead of us going to the cross, Jesus did. And that God looked on His death as our death. And then that God looked at at us in the same way He looked at Him. So in other words, God looked at His Son and saw you and me and our sin and allowed Him to be our sacrifice, who had been through a life just like ours because He set Himself to do that. And he, he walked that path. And then He allows that, that vision to then carry over to us to where now when God the Father looks at you in Christ, He sees His Son. Because He fully became your sacrifice because He fully submitted Himself to, through walking the, the path that was required of Him from 12 to 30 before He ever even opened up His earthly ministry and died for us. So I hope that as you read through this story, you won't just read it as a children's story, though it's wonderful in that respect. But the truth of it is that this changed the path that Jesus would walk, and Luke wanted Theophilus to see. This is how you know that this is your Redeemer, that this is the Messiah. Let's pray. Father, I thank You that You love us. I thank You that that You lived as a sinless sacrifice for us and that you have drawn us to yourself, given us the opportunity to know you in salvation. It's in Christ's name that I pray. Amen. Amen.